I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast. Did you miss us? Maybe you did. Maybe you didn't. I missed doing the pod. Here with Benji, as always, for the recap of Classica San Sebastian 2021. Bit of a low-key start list, given the Olympics had a big effect on the start list here. The big name, big favourite was Julian Alphilippe on Quickstep, who curiously didn't go to the Olympics because I thought he was taking a break from racing. But he's here with a strong team, David Irons, etc. Other guys to look out for, Juan Ayuso, young Spaniard on UAE Team Emirates, and Bernal making his way back from uh, his recovery, his first race maybe since uh, COVID and the Giro Benji as well. So they got a pretty stacked team in EOS. But the parkour... Reminds you a lot of Liège, to be frank. Uh, 223Ks, and it's, it's got the highest cabal, but that's with like 63Ks to the finish. Then there's the Erlites climb, 4Ks, 11%. Steep stuff, longer than Liège for sure, but it's the 2.1Ks, 10% near the finish that reminds me a lot uh, of Liège. Wet conditions in Basque Country, and then it's like 9Ks, descent to the finish. So whoever goes, if you went over the top there, Alaphilippe, you'd have a pretty good shot at, at winning. Uh, but yeah, as I said, this show is brought to you by Cole. Benji had his eagle eye on the breakaway, uh, and it's a pretty large break with not too much leash. Yeah, certainly. It was one of the large breakaways for these one-day races I've seen in a while, including some decent riders like Conti and also Javier Romo, who went for KOM points, which is quite fun to see on a one-day race. But that break didn't really play a role too much in this race when it comes to the overall outcome. So if we go further into the race where the race started opening up properly, wasn't really on the Ice Cabell yet. We had some attacks there. I think Modric went for a first attack on the Ice Cabell or just after that. And then we started the Edelites climb. And that's where people started moving in the peloton. And we had Landismo. He's back. Yes. <laughs> after he uh, <laughs> he's somewhat back, okay? I'm happy to see him on a bike again, and that makes everybody happy. And Mikalanda goes for the attack on the Airlights climb, and he gets followed by Simon Carr from EF Education first. And this was quite curious. We still had some breakaway riders still up there, but eventually those got caught and got caught by the peloton, and it was those two riders at the front. But Carr was dropping Landa, and that was the sign that Landa is not in Giro form at all. It's quite obvious it's his first race back, so we're not expecting that. But I'm honestly curious what you think in regards to like the Vuelta soon, right? Isn't he going to the Vuelta? Yeah, I think so. I don't expect much, to be honest. Um, that's my honest opinion. <laughs> I'm more keen to watch Yeah, the comeback of Bernal, Padun, Hopefully, it's racing the welter. I don't know. There's provisional start list, but yeah, do you expect this is Landers like cold, wet conditions, hilly parkour? I mean, were you kind of surprised that he attacked from 40Ks out rather than have Bahrain set it up for him to hit the uh, Murgil climb? I think that was perhaps the plan they had in, in mind that they wanted to try and go with Landa on this climb and wanted to use other riders on the other climbs because, like you said, I think they had Mohoric still, I don't know, as well in this race. So they've got a few riders that can do something on this terrain. And perhaps Landa was the early favorite to, to go 
ham up that airlight's climb and make a break happen there for men or something, get away there. But Landa was unable to do so, but Carr actually made a solid gap. 20 seconds, 25 seconds, and he went over the top of the Adelaide's climb, goes into the descent, and in the group behind, we basically saw that that group was so thinned down, and we had Trek Segafredo setting things up, still pacing with, I think, Antonio Nibali was doing some stuff in the group as well to, to keep on pacing and keep the group somewhat together. A few riders for UAE, including Ayuso, Kovi, and so forth. Alaphilippe still there for the Koenig quick step with um, David Ains and also Honore. And after that descent, we saw another group worm its way away from the uh, Peloton Elite group, and that included four riders. That was Honore, Paulus, Rota, and Jesus Christ, how did I forget who's the fourth rider? <laughs> oh no, Mohoric. <laughs> Quite an important one. <laughs> so um, they eventually brought it towards Simon Carr, and they had a, a bit of a gap, and the cooperation behind was not that crazy with just the Muriel Tontora left to go. Well, Quickstep weren't pacing, which this is the curious thing. Quickstep have, have decided at this point to put all their eggs in the Mikel Honore basket with, yeah, with Alaphilippe, the big pre-race favourite and this Murdoch climb that really suits him. EF are playing it perfectly, using their riders, who none of whom are probably the strongest on that climb out of the favourites group, but they've got good numbers and depth with Guerrero Carr and Powell. So they're, now they have two riders in a group of five. Really good for them. I was kind of surprised, Benji. I know Ineos paced for a little bit with Carlos Rodriguez, and I know UAE maybe paced for a little bit, but it was pretty much... All I was seeing when this gap went out to a minute and we everyone knows it's a minute and it's sitting there in the 8Ks run into the Miragil climb, 18Ks, 20Ks to go. I'm just seeing Gianluca Brambilla on the – why do I say it with Spanish pronunciation? He's Italian. Gianluca Brambilla <laughs> on, the, on the front. It's because I'm yeah, speaking Spanish every day now or trying at least. He, he's on the front pacing and for Giulio Ciccone or Balca Molima and – I'm like, why aren't UAE pacing? They've got Kovi in the group. Uh, Ineos had multiple riders, Carlos Rodriguez, uh, Adam Yates, and Egan Bernal. Were you surprised that the other teams, I guess, kind of looked to me like they pretty much gave up, frankly? Yeah, it looked like they gave up, and it was mainly UAE that only had like one rider at the front of the group, and they had multiple riders in that group to still do something. So I was expecting them to base because they have COVID, they have Ayuso, I think Ulisi was still in that group, and there was the La Cruz as well, so that's enough riders to do something, and if you're not at the front, you're not going to be competitive for the victory, obviously. And Ineos as well was one of the teams that I was expecting more of, because they weren't doing anything either, and had multiple riders in the group, so a bit surprising from those, but personally I don't blame the Koenig going for Honore, and that was shown by the fact that Honore was relatively good on the Murgil Tontora climb because that group, that front group, started the climb and directly we saw Paulus going for an attack very early on, not on the steepest sections yet, just instantly. And we saw that Mohoric did not respond. He chose to keep his own tempo, which is probably a very good decision in hindsight because he kept crawling closer and closer towards the top of the climbs and... By the end of the climb, they were back together and they only missed Simon Carr. I think Rota, was he still on? I think he was still on and Onore as well. Rota had a bit of difficulties on top, but yeah, they went into the descent with three riders with Rota just like 10 seconds behind. So at the front of the race, we had Mohoric, Paulus and Onore. And when you look at that group, 
you say Mohoric, godlike descender, what is he going to do now? But he didn't go to the front at the start of the descent. And I was like, it's kind of normal because the gradient of the descent is that it's kind of falls flat downhill at the top and then goes down after like one and a half kilometers or something. So I wasn't expecting fireworks at the start of the descent. And he did go to the front when the steeper descent started happening. And that's where something happened. Before we get to the spiciest or maybe most controversial part of this race, a word on our show partner, LeCole. They produce performance cycling apparel. If you're riding, riding in similar conditions to the Basque Country today, they've got haute route jerseys, they've got sport gilets, pro wind jackets and rain jackets galore. But if you've had the hot conditions that we've had here recently, there's the pro air jersey, there's the Monte Grappa collection, or there's the new lightweight collection for summer, which is made of breathable fabrics perfect for long climbs in hot conditions so the call of support of the podcast since its inception last year if you want to check out their performance cycling apparel you can see it through the link down below or www.lacole.cc but now onto this descent where morris was yeah leading he taken it easy i think over the top recovering because he'd caught palace palace had done a big acceleration palace better climber than morich but morich good at clawing those back after you see liege top tens etc he'll claw it back on the descent goes to the front there's this really tight right hand corner super wet and yeah he stuffs it pretty much he unclips as he realizes he's making the mistake unclips his right foot trying to counterbalance goes off his line all the way to the gutter on the left hand side and then behind him rota and Honoré trying to take evasive action. They hit uh, they hit a hard wall made of like stones, no protection on it, not sure. Don't even want to think about how whether there was a big drop off it. And uh, but luckily they they crash, their bikes like bounce back into the road and they have no mechanicals. They get straight back on. But yeah, they've crashed. And Paulus avoided it. He goes clear, and then we don't really know what's going on. We have a camera on Paulus, we have a camera on uh, Honore catching back up and Morich we assume is somewhere in between but yeah how did you see that corner Benji did it remind you I guess of um, it reminded me of the way Morich crashed in the Giro where he just to overcooked the corner and he uh, yeah he nearly crashed and he he caused in my view the other guys to crash yeah true but it reminded me more of that crash we had was it in the Giro where Gavidia was in a breakaway and on one of the descents he took a corner too wide as well and he ended up also hitting a wall. But Mohoric was able to save himself and keep going. But the curious thing about this crash and the sad thing about this crash is as well that from this point onwards, you need to keep in mind, well, Mohoric and Paulus are a bit clear. Paulus is gone for a bit, has like 10 seconds on Mohoric apparently. We didn't know yet, but that is how it ended up being. And then we have Honore and Rota. Honore was the first of the two to get up because Rota crashed because the bike of Honore crash back into the road, straight into the back wheel of Rota, which is just the most stupid way to crash. And it's not the fault of anyone. And it's so annoying, but that's how it happened. And Rota was the rider most affected by it and was completely thrown out of contention here. Honore was getting back up, was crawling back and was trying to make his way back. But the man just hit a wall. He's spending so much energy. This is taken away from all the energy he has. But so at this point, you're thinking, well, if Mohoric wins, there's going to be drama. Like, somebody's going to put on Twitter, ah, oh, he crashed the other people out, and that's why he won. So at that point, I was slightly hoping that we would have Honore or Paulus win just for that Me too. to be avoided, to be honest. I think, yeah, the the crash, Mohoric, yes, he didn't crash, 
but it's not like he took a perfect line. The other guys couldn't hold that line. No, he came off his line. He's beginning to crash and the others have to take evasive action because he's gone over his limit and gone off his line and they're having to break. So it's his fault and they're having to take corrective action behind him, although it is a sketchy corner. It also, he catches up to Paulus and then he starts pacing as well. So I was hoping Paulus or Honoré would win, as Benji said. Moric, he came like third in a Tour de Hungary sprint, Benji, behind Aberastri yeah. and, and Bauhaus. He's, he's a quick guy, yeah. um, Moric. So it looks like, well, they're going to make him lead them out. That's what they did. Honoré's quick. He came like third in a, he's like top 10 in a bunch sprint before. Yep. Third behind Sagan and Diego Ulissi. Long straight finish on the left-hand barrier. Morich starts to lead them out from so, so far. Uh, too far, in fact, he begins his kick. And that's what cost him with Paulus getting a – like he was in his draft for so long, eventually comes out of it and just inches up past Morich. We can't really see it live. We've also got Honoré trying to come out of Paulus' draft to the right-hand side. The only reason we think Paulus has won is because he's celebrating so enthusiastically, but Riders have got it wrong before. We eventually see the shot on the line, and Paulus wins by four inches, three inches. Really, like, that's got to be the biggest win of Paulus' career. Uh, he's it's been first in- pro win. Is it? Yeah, he once won a jersey, I think, in Joe Martin's stage race. I'm not sure about it, but... It is his first pro win, which is insane to think about because wow. I swear this man has been in so many breakaways with Yumbo first and then Yeva and so forth. And the fact that he hasn't won yet is mind-blowing and it's so fun to see him win finally. I mean, I've criticized Palace uh, a fair bit in the past for his tactics in Tour de France breakaways, particularly in 2020. Not so much this year. I think he is mature. You know, he's 24 now this year. He's learning. Like last year, he was pacing hard in a break with Martinez or no, not Martinez. Well, it was really strong climbers and it cost him. Uh, he got torched by, I think, Maida in a Paris-Nice break this year. Probably not much he could do there on stage seven. But today he had to attack on that last climb. You don't want to go to the finish with Morich. They played the car, Palace 1 2. He avoided played crashing. The car. <laughs> played the Simon Gale, his French Benji. Come on. <laughs> and um, yeah, a great win for him, albeit a reduced field and from the break. But I've got to commend EF on their tactics. They used their multiple riders in numbers, and I think they played the race the best today. And yeah, I'm really, really glad they got, got the win with Palace, who's. A super talent. They've had Paulus and Coos win this month, World Tour, Grand Tour stages. So McNulty, actually McNulty Olympics, not good in the TT. But yeah, good from him. And Honoré, we, we're going to excuse Honoré and Quickstep, Benji, because I agree with you, but you told me off air, but why should we give Quickstep a bit of a pass? Well, because they decided to trust Honoré in this breakaway. They did that probably based on some information. You mentioned that it could be the weather for Alaphilippe. He's been in shitty weather pretty badly in the past remind me of the Tirreno stage um, that Vanderpool won eventually he was just gone instantly when the rain started pouring but today Honoré literally crashed into a wall stood up had to chase back for two three kilometers after that crash came onto the wheel had to try and crawl back to a little move that Mohoric made just before the final kilometer as well and eventually still ends within a meter of this of this stage win so Imagine if he doesn't crash, he could have potentially won. You don't know that. So I, I'd i say that their strategy to trust Honoré was deserving for the lad and they clearly had trust in him today. And in all honesty, looking back at the race, I'd say that trust was deserved. 
Yeah, I mean, you think of, you know, we haven't seen any quotes we record straight afterwards, but my default assumption is Julian Alaphilippe does not like the cold and wet. He sort of 18 degrees and sunny, he's absolutely magic. Yes, Quickstep had the strongest team, but, you know, they still got a guy third. He, he, as Benji said, third by a few inches. He's hit a wall and come back. That has to cost him something in his sprint. Yeah. Honoré's a legit quick guy. And, yeah, there was a lot of pressure on him to, because that's the card they played, but I guess that is the quick step way. Maybe if Alaphilippe's like, listen, I, I feel okay, but I'm 5% off. And if, if he's if he's then not going to drop the guys ever reduced bunch sprint, you know, probably better to play the card they played. Maybe maybe they just stuffed it tactically. I don't know, um, but maybe Honoré didn't need to pull as much. I think the teams that are a little bit questionable would be Ineos and UAE, with Kovi being quick in the group behind, with Ineos having multiple riders. They seem to give up the ghost pretty soon after that break got forty seconds, uh, even though the break got pretty dysfunctional, but. Honestly, not a race I'll remember <laughs> the rest of my life. <laughs> the stylist wasn't great. I don't really like the, the profile. It was rainy. I couldn't see what was going on. The production would focus on G3 for two minutes. But um, it's a World Tour race. So <laughs> First one for Ayuso. The man's on the field it? now. It's his uh, second or third race for UAE Team Emirates. He was 18th today in that group that was behind. So he could have done some work for Kobe, to be honest. But hey, uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm curious to see what he will involve into. If you don't know Ayuso and you're listening to this podcast, he's 18 years old. He's an absolute god in the races Weapon. he's done so far in U23. He's won the Giro U23. He's. I don't think I'm overestimating him if I say that he's one of the bigger talents in cycling that we have right now, and that he's moving or leaning into a GC type of rider. I don't want to overshout it and say, he's the next Pogacar, but it wouldn't surprise me if he's the next great climber. Oh, he's an absolute animal. He's like 18 years old. Yeah. Yeah, crazy, crazy good uh, rider. Maybe he doesn't, you know, who knows what could happen, but yeah. I'll be, I think his next race is the Sukito de Getcho Memorial. Then he does Britannia Classic. Uh, which won't really suit him. And then these go to Tour de Luxembourg, but just some low-key races, I think, to get him think into it's good. the swing of things. Yeah, it's I was good. scared they'd send him to the Vuelta already, but they won't do that to an 18-year-old. I think next year's Vuelta and the year after, perhaps, Tour, if he's actually good. So, um, yeah, curious to see what he evolves into, and he's one of those riders you need to keep an eye on. Here's the top 10, which we always forget to do. Paulus first and Moritz Honore. Paul Lorenzo Rota coming fourth. I would have loved to see him have a chance yeah. to sprint for a stage. Podium, he was actually in a break in the tour from memory as well. Covey fifth, Alaphilippe sixth, Christian Odd Eiking seventh, Jonas Wingerhoff eighth. God, a lot of Scandinavians in here, making it difficult for me. <laughs> Gianni Moscon ninth, and Balka Molima tenth. Uh, Bernal, he was in that group as well. He was in the group as well. So he's looking okay. If maybe, you know, it's his first race back. So certainly looking okay, and his training's okay. You know what, a statistic I want found, Benji? What? what? proportion of breakaways has Morich been in this season where the break was successful even if it's not him winning it feel it's got to be the highest in world tour cycling surely it has to be pretty high i, I wouldn't know who else would if he goes you've got to send like, a guy with him there's probably like one guy that went in one breakaway and has 100 percent because that breakaway eventually won <laughs> minimum but like sample from size. people yeah minimum sample size five breakaways 
but um I think that he's definitely one of the one of the top ones. But he's also been in a lot of breakaways in the tour that went nowhere and he went into attacks everywhere. So yeah, I'm not sure if him attacking, then getting caught, and someone else winning really is credit to him. It depends well, on how long he was in the breakaway. True. I think another question I had was, do you think this was another scenario where the, the Peloton underestimated Simon Carr? We saw it in maybe San Sebastian when, when Remco won. We've seen it a lot this year in both women's and men's racing where they're like, who's Simon Carr, 22-year-old. They let him have more time than if it was um, a, a bigger name rider and ends up then having EF having two riders to relay in a group of five. Well, this is a bit of an odd race because like, I'd like to pull us back to 2019. Remco won this race last time. And the way he won that was in a very similar way where he attacked before the final Murgil Tontora. And when he went, nobody started pacing. And on the climb itself, we didn't have too many people pacing either. So he was completely unmarked and they waited way too long to start chasing him. So very similar situation there. This time around, we had Trek pacing like a madman with all the riders they had and other teams just not doing it. So I think UAE fell asleep somewhere with 40k to go and realized they were in the San Sebastian race with 8k to go and then it's too late to try and catch the breakaway. So hopefully they put their alarm a bit earlier for the Vuelta. I don't know what's next for Nielsen Paulus. I do think he's physiologically a really, really good talent. I, I would a guy you'd have to send to the Vuelta to stage hunt. Um, maybe he's in good shape, but he did do the Tour de France and he has fifty-one race days already. So that would be a pretty heavy season for him if he does it. But we hope you enjoyed the recap of the men's race. Thanks to Lacole for supporting the podcast. Stay tuned if you're listening on podcast players for the women's and one uh, sort of self-plug. I have is I've got a survey up on my main channel community tab uh, this evening if you're checking out after my highlight video um, just on some information trying to get some demographic information more than YouTube provides me about my viewers I think it takes about 30 seconds to fill out and uh, yeah if you want to check I'll that do out it. So I'll fill it can in. do it all I, right I, okay Benji will troll the answers, I reckon. So we need other people to do real answers so that it evens his <laughs> out. Anyway, on to the women's now. 139K parkour. We had no SD works on the start list uh, or DSM. Now, I don't know about the rules. Like in the men's race, if it's a World Tour level race, all the World Tour teams have to turn up. So I don't know what was going on there, but we didn't have all the World Tour teams. But anyway, 139K parkour, three main climbs, uh, 9K shallow grading one at the start, then the famous Hayiska Bell in the middle with 87Ks done, 8Ks 5.5%, but it's obviously it is the classic stereotypical um, fake news climb. And then they finish with the Murugil climb 2k's 10.1 percent steep sections then a pretty sketch descent in the wet before the like it's like eight k's to finish from that point so whoever went clear with a decent gap on that as long as they didn't crash on the descent game over same in the men's race same run in as well and yeah it was raining it's the best country that's what it does uh but yeah we'll have a word on our show partner look hole in a second after benji tells us the initial breakaway action yes sir we had a well a rainy day today and a three-woman breakaway started with Evita Muzic, French champion. We had local hero Sant Esteban, Polina Royakers in the initial breakaway as well of three. And then eventually we had some people joining once we went over that Yaiskabel. Just after that, Cordon Rago came in, Buril, and also Guderzo. Those riders were joining as well. So a six-woman breakaway going into the last, like, whew, 
roughly 30 kilometers, 33 kilometers. Yeah. One minute 40 was the gap on the peloton in which we obviously saw control by a team that was trying to get their leader to the uh, Murgil Tontara to absolutely try and destroy people on that climb. And that was Movistar that was setting things up. They were pacing and it seemed like they didn't pace crazily at the start. They were trying to control it. And towards the Murgil Tontara, they were setting up a bigger and bigger pace. But people started moving and attacking in the front group, right? Yeah, Cordon Rigaud, uh, maybe not trusting herself on the climb. She attacked. They had really good cohesion uh, up to that point. I think it was only uh, Burel who was sitting on. She on a Conti team, I think. But the others were all working really well. Santos man working super hard. And just a note on these riders. So Ruyakas, I think, came like second or third in uh, Giro d'Emilia last year behind Ludwig. So good on a like 2K steep yeah. climb. Tatiana Guderzo, she won World Champs in 2009, hilly course. She's come second and third the years before, and she's 36, so she's a veteran, uh, I think, on the LABTC Ljubljana. But she even, I think, won Giro de la Milia in like 2017-18. So she's a hilly one-day specialist, super strong today. So maybe the likes of her and Ruliakas in the group meant Cordon Rago. I think of her more as a... A ruler type rider didn't want to yeah. go to that climb with them. So, but then they came back together, they brought it back, and they, they still kept working. But Movistar had that gap now under one minute, and they were literally doing a TTT, like rolling turns. It was, it was great to see for Van Leuten. Uh, but yeah, as we get into the run, in fact, you know, it was super wet, fast country, as I said. And if you want to pick up any wet weather gear, our show partner, Lukol, have you covered? There's the men and women's, there's a full women's section on Lacole as well. Um, there's women's pro rain jacket as well as obviously the men's edition. There's rain jackets, um, pro wind jackets, etc. And there's obviously, of course, the, uh, the there's a women's pro aqua zero long sleeve jersey, which is really good for sort of wet basque style conditions. So it's www.lacole.cc if you want to check that out. But going to the base of the climb, Benji, it was weird. Like, where did Cordon Rago attack for the second time? Had they already been climbing for a little bit there? Because she seemed to hit this sort of, it became a false flat section where she attacked. Yeah, it wasn't on like the steep section of the climb, for example. It was on a, a false flexion on the initial portion of the climb. It's not a long climb. You said it, two kilometers, 10.1 average, but it's very, it's very like not steady. It goes up and down and up and down and up and down, but the steepness of certain portions makes it so steep on average. She went very early on the climb and she did so, I guess, for the reason you said it. Perhaps on the steep sections, she thought, well, perhaps other people will be able to counter me easily compared to the sections that I'm currently on. So that's at least the logic I see in that move. But we need to keep in mind that this gap to the group behind was getting closer as well. That Movistar team was on like, 40 seconds out of front of the race yeah. when that group was still together and Kodonago went for that move, made a bit of a gap and she started riding a good who, 20 seconds ahead of the chasing group of the rest that was relatively working together. But you know that on the steeper sections of the Tontora, it's going to be a, a 1v1v1 in that group as well to get over those steep sections and then see how many people do we have left. So it wasn't like that group effect was going to be major on the Muriel Tontora. But she had a bit of a gap, 20 seconds on that chasing group, and roughly 30 seconds from that chasing group to the group behind where Sarah Martin was taking over for Movistar, and she had a hell of a pull for Van Vleuten. 
it was crazy. It's like I thought Novastar's team was actually kind of cooked. Uh, they got a strong team, you know, Erich, et cetera. Uh, they've been working so hard on the flat. But, yeah, she absolutely ripped this the base of this climb, uh, especially when it was the similar section where Cordon Rago attacked. They're going well over 30 k's an hour, I think, on that section. Draft is still really important. And, yeah, Sarah Martin, huge job, 22 years old, really young. I think it's her first year at World Tour level. Um, and, yeah, outstanding for Movistar. Movistar team, the, the women's team, I think they're uh, Sebastian Unzue is the guy that maybe is the manager there. The teamwork on Movistar women's team and is usually outstanding from what I – even when Norsgaard – when they're running for Norsgaard and Lloyd, it's usually really, really good. Uh, but, yeah, she led Van Leuten out. We had the, the breakaway um, – so called on regard attack from the break. We had the, the five riders from that break. These roads are narrow. They're literally like five wide blocking this road. Van Vleuten then attacks and she has to wait for like a little bit to actually get around them and not go into the grass verge. Gets past around Ruyak is I think on the right-hand side and then does her sort of, you know, typical Van Vleuten thrashing about style attack out of the saddle. Gaps everyone. I think it was Ruth Winder, Benji's, um, and you started a petition to have her not retire at the end of this year. Was it her for Trek? I can't. I couldn't tell because she had the um, she had a rain jacket on. Was it actually her following? Yeah, it was. It was her following. She had that rain jacket on, so it was difficult. And I had that with a few riders where I was like, okay, who is that person? It could be this person or this person. <laughs> yeah. But I think I was pretty sure that it would be Ruth Winder because she also fits perfectly on the sparkle in any situation that this race goes towards. But she was able to follow Van Vleuten for a bit onto a oh, it wasn't even a steep section where von Vleuten got loose from everybody you know like i was kind of surprised seeing it happen she bridged up from that group with roof winder to the front to conor go and went past her on a false flat section and that was the most surprising part to me because obviously you'd expect on the steep sections that she hammers it and she's gone but to see her just be able to drop people on the not so steep section like that is just Hella impressive. She went past Colorado and she was off to the top of Murgil Tontora. And she didn't wait until like the 500 meters before the top to make that move. She did it 1.2K from the top. So it's still a significant move, but she had to do it. Otherwise, she might not have been able to catch, well, the rider up front if she waited till the last 100 meters. But in all honesty, from that point onwards, it was the Van Vleuten show. I, uh, it was over. Yeah, it was over. <laughs> <laughs> the only question mark was whether she, God forbid, would crash on the wet technical descent. That was, the, on, not, that was yeah. the only thing stopping Van Vleuten from winning. She yep. put like 30 seconds into everyone on the steeper section. And with no Van der Breggen or SD Works here, yeah, this this one was a wrap. And, you know, as sort of expected, if they were able to control the break, which the Movistar team was able to do. So, yeah, we're basically watching a 9K Van Vleuten solo down that descent. Um, yeah, had no no issues, and it was Ruth Winder, easily the strongest out of anyone else chasing. She finished, so Van Vleuten wins actually off the steel off the top rope with the steel chair. Anna Kiesenhofer, the ghost appears in front of Annemiek Van Vleuten. Yeah. <laughs> I need to uh, trying to create a, a meme of that if I can get any photos through from Corvos of this race, which haven't come through yet. Um, but yeah. Ruth Winder, 36 seconds behind. And then it was Tatiana Guderza who reached that break solo third. Yep. Really impressive result from her, beating everyone else in the peloton who'd been sitting in. Uh, no, I'd also like to call out Brody Chapman. Nice results for her on FDJ, the Australian. Brilliant. And Van Dyke, to be honest, top 10. Pretty good for her as well. So 
could anyone have done anything else, Benji? I don't really think so. Like this is just one of those results where the best you can do is what Trek did. Trek tried to get caught on Rago on the break. Break got caught. It is what it is, right? Exactly. I don't think there was too much else you can do here. I think that she was heavy favorite going into this race. Everybody, well, 99% of people were sure that she was the most likely rider to win this race. And she eventually made that happen. And she did it in the way that people would expect her to do it by being so strong on the latter climb that she demolishes everyone and passes everyone just in time to be over the top alone to the finish line. And yeah, I was kind of hoping, similar to you, that when she crosses the line that her swan year would come to her and, and say, well, von Flöten, I'm sorry, but there was an Austrian up the road and you're second. <laughs> that would have been so harsh. Well, apparently and, uh, she said she said something on the finish line. I, I yeah. think the Flamme Rouge were listening to like the ambient feed and she said to her swan year, in the Olympics I missed a team. Here I had a team. I was enjoying it, which... Um, I mean, yeah, she had a really good team performance today, but uh, without revisiting too much, I feel like she was she was most of the problem for the Dutch team <laughs> at Tokyo anyway. But, um, yeah, it's just one of those things where every women, other women's world tour team got a rider in the break, San Testaban, Cordon Rigaud, Muzic, yep. and Guderzo for the LABTC, and it didn't and work out. was too strong. So, yep. yeah, in the end, Van Vleuten is the winner today, and... One could say she did it alone, but that's not the case. I feel like Movis started it as a team here. And without a team, it would have been harder for Van Vleuten to win this race, although probably still possible, in all honesty. But uh, I enjoyed the race. It's it's fun to see. Like I enjoy seeing any women's race right now because they're so limited and we've got so many coming in the next two months and I'm so hyped about it. So seeing this was like the start of the women's cycling season again for two months because while the Olympics happened, it was after a, uh, a moment of having no World Tour women's races. We had the Giro Dome, for example, but that was during the Tour de France, so there's barely any attention going to that. Obviously, the coming races are during the Vuelta, so it's not much better, but it, I just enjoy it. So it's fun to see it back. I think the next the next race, I might be wrong. Definitely Ladies Tour of Norway? Ladies Tour of Norway, that's right. Yeah, early August. That's got an absolutely stacked start list with Yumbos and with Voss and co., um, ST works. I think Fisher Black might even get some leadership there. She might have earned it, Movistar as well. So, yeah, watch out for that. Um, you'll see some younger riders on those women's world tour teams getting opportunities, as well as obviously Drops the Cole are racing there with Joss Loudon, uh, the British rider on Drops the Cole. But I think also that two Norwegians on that team. Yeah. Yes, sir. I think that that race might be one of the reasons that Unix, for example, is looking to create that women's team next year. Because if a, a race like that is in women's world tour, a Norwegian race, then it's obviously more intriguing for a team to be created in that area. And I think they announced one of their riders, Hannah Ludwig. So it's looking cool. So definitely uh, follow up that uh, that creation of the team in the coming months because that will be a, a fun journey to observe. Anyway, that's all from us today. We hope you enjoyed the recap of Classic San Sebastian women's race. Nothing too tactical for Benji and I to, to delve into, but an enjoyable race nonetheless in wet conditions. Bit of a shame that it was difficult to try and watch it. I guess that's a recurring problem, not just with the women's races, but with trying to watch cycling events. It's like you need a PhD in in technology and where it's always being shown, and you know that I'm contributes that contributes to piracy, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but yeah. We, we caught it and uh, let, let us know if you were able to watch it as well and what you thought of it. But that's all from us 
today and we'll see you with the recap of I don't know what's next. Follow us on Twitter at Lanchon Rouge CP to find out what's next. We've got a list of everything coming in the next couple of months. There's so much. Love it. <laughs> Too much. Ciao. Ciao.